Welcome to Just Listen, a celebration of literature from Nashville Public Library. For more stories and poetry, visit our website at library.nashville.org. Please feel free to leave a comment or to make requests or recommendations. And now, for today's selection. Today we examine excerpts from the writings of two famous Italian writers whose works have influenced Western culture for over 600 years. Dante Alighieri, whose visions of heaven, purgatory, and hell have entertained and inspired readers for centuries, is widely considered one of the greatest poets of Western civilization. In Dante's time, most European writers wrote in Latin, the language of scholarship and of the Catholic Church. Dante believed that poets should write in the vernacular, or the language of the people, in his case, in Italian. His crowning achievement, The Divine Comedy, is an Italian work that has been translated into numerous languages worldwide. Today's reading, taken from the part of the story in which the poet Virgil escorts Dante through the lower regions of hell, describes the two reaching the ninth circle of hell, where those guilty of the worst sin, treachery, are found. These include Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, and Brutus and Cassius, two Roman senators who plotted to assassinate the Roman ruler, Julius Caesar. They also include the angel-turned-devil Satan, here called Lucifer, the ultimate traitor who rebelled against God. We will begin with a prose rendering of the canto, followed by the poetry. From the Inferno by Dante Alighieri, we begin. On march the banners of the king. Virgil begins as the poets face the last depth. He is quoting a medieval hymn, and to it he adds the distortion and perversion of all that lies about him. On march the banners of the king, of hell. And there before them, in an infernal parody of Godhead, they see Satan in the distance, his great wings beating like a windmill. It is their beating that is the source of the icy wind of Cocytus, the exhalation of all evil. All about him in the ice are strewn the sinners of the last round, Judeca, named for Judas Iscariot. These are the treacherous to their masters. They lie completely sealed in the ice, twisted and distorted into every conceivable posture. It is impossible to speak to them, and the poets move on to observe Satan. He is fixed into the ice at the center to which flow all the rivers of guilt, and as he beats his great wings as if to escape, their icy wind only freezes him more surely into the polluted ice. In a grotesque parody of the Trinity, he has three faces, each a different color, and in each mouth he clamps a sinner whom he rips eternally with his teeth. Judas Iscariot is in the central mouth, Brutus and Cassius in the mouths on either side. Having seen all, the poets now climb through the center, grappling hand over hand down the hairy flank of Satan himself, a last supremely symbolic action, and at last, when they have passed the center of all gravity, they emerge from hell. A long climb from the earth's center to the Mount of Purgatory awaits them, and they push on without rest, ascending along the sides of the river Lethe, till they emerge once more to see the stars of heaven just before dawn on Easter Sunday. On march the banners of the King of Hell, my master said, toward us, look straight ahead, 
Can you make him out at the core of the frozen shell? Like a whirling windmill seen afar at twilight, or when a mist has risen from the ground, just such an engine rose up upon my sight, stirring up such a wild and bitter wind, I cowered for shelter at my master's back, there being no other windbreak I could find. I stood now where the souls of the last class, with fear my verses tell it, were covered wholly. They shone below the ice like straws in glass. Some lie stretched out, others are fixed in place upright, some on their heads, some on their souls, another, like a bow, bends foot to face. When we had gone so far across the ice that it pleased my guide to show me the foul creature which once had worn the grace of paradise, he made me stop, and stepping aside, he said, Now see the face of Dis. This is the place where you must arm your soul against all dread. Do not ask, reader, how my blood ran cold and my voice choked up with fear. I cannot write it. This is a terror that cannot be told. I did not die, and yet I lost life's breath. Imagine for yourself what I became, deprived at once of both my life and death. The emperor of the universe of pain jutted his upper chest above the ice, and I am closer in size to the great mountain the titans make around the central pit than they to his arms. Now, starting from this part, imagine the whole that corresponds to it. If he was once as beautiful as now he is hideous, and still turned on his maker, well may he be the source of every woe. With what a sense of awe I saw his head towering above me, for it had three faces. One was in front, and it was fiery red. The other two, as weirdly wonderful, merged with it from the middle of each shoulder to the point where all converged at the top of the skull. The right was something between white and bile. The left was about the color one observes on those who live along the banks of the Nile. Under each head, two wings rose terribly, their span proportioned to so gross a bird. I never saw such sails upon the sea. They were not feathers, their texture and their form were like a bat's wings, and he beat them so that three winds blew from him in one great storm. It is these winds that freeze all cockatus. He wept from his six eyes, and down three chins the tears ran mixed with bloody froth and pus. In every mouth he worked a broken sinner between his rake-like teeth. Thus he kept three in eternal pain at his eternal dinner. For the one in front the biting seemed to play no part at all compared to the ripping. At times the whole skin of his back was flayed away. That soul that suffers most, explained my guide, is Judas Iscariot. He who kicks his legs on the fiery chin and has his head inside. Of the other two, who have their heads thrust forward, the one who dangles down from the black face is Brutus. Note how he writhes without a word. And there with the huge and sinewy arms is the soul of Cassius. But the night is coming on, and we must go, for we have seen the whole. Then as he bade, I clasped his neck, and he, watching for a moment when the wings were opened wide, reached over dexterously and seized the shaggy coat of the king demon. Then grappling matted hair and frozen crusts from one tuft to another clambered down. When we had reached the joint where the great thigh merges into the swelling of the haunch, my guide and master, straining terribly, turned his head to where his feet had been and began to grip the hair as if he were climbing, so that I thought we moved toward hell again.
Hold fast, my guide said, and his breath came shrill with labor and exhaustion. There is no way but by such stairs to rise above such peril. At last he climbed out through an opening in the central rock, and he seated me on the rim, then joined me with a nimble backward spring. I looked up, thinking to see Lucifer as I had left him, and I saw instead his legs projecting high into the air. Now let all those whose dull minds are still vexed by failure to understand what point it was I had passed through judge if I was perplexed. Get up, up on your feet, my master said. The sun already mounts to middle terse, and a long road and hard climbing lie ahead. It was no hall of state we had found there, but a natural animal pit hollowed from rock with a broken floor and a close and sunless air. Before I tear myself from the abyss, I said when I had risen, O my master, explain to me my error in all this. Where is the ice? And Lucifer, how has he been turned from top to bottom, and how can the sun have gone from night to day so suddenly? And he said to me, You imagine you are still on the other side of the center where I grasped the shaggy flank of the great worm of evil which bores through the world. You were while I climbed down. But when I turned myself about, you passed the point to which all gravities are drawn. You are under the other hemisphere where you stand. The sky above us is the half opposed to that which canopies the great dry land. Under the midpoint of that other sky, the man who was born sinless and who lived beyond all blemish came to suffer and die. You have your feet upon a little sphere which forms the other side of the Judeca. There it is evening when it is morning here. And this gross fiend and image of all evil, who made a stairway for us with his hide, is pinched and prisoned in the ice pack still. On this side he plunged down from heaven's height, and the land that spread here once hid in the sea and fled north to our hemisphere for fright. And it may be that, moved by the same fear, the one peak that still rises on this side fled upward, leaving this great cavern here. Down there, beginning at the further bound of Beelzebub's dim tomb, there is a space not known by sight, but only by the sound of a little stream descending through the hollow it has eroded from the massive stone in its endlessly entwining lazy flow. My guide and I crossed over and began to mount that little known and lightless road to ascend into the shining world again. He first, I second. Without thought of rest, we climbed the dark until we reached the point where a round opening brought in sight the blessed and beauteous shining of the heavenly cars and we walked out once more beneath the stars. Another Italian work, The Decameron, by Giovanni Boccaccio, reveals his impressive literary versatility while exploring deeply human universal themes of love, loss, deception, fate, and honor. In 1348, Bubonic plague swept through Europe, killing more than half the population of Florence, Italy, including Boccaccio's parents. The Decameron begins with a group of ten young aristocrats, seven women and three men, taking up residence on a country estate where they hope to wait out the plague in Florence. To entertain themselves, each of them tells one story a day for ten days. The name Decameron means ten days. Each day they elect a king or queen to preside over the day's storytelling and suggest the theme of the stories. Federigo's falcon is told on the fifth day. 
In addition to this great and entertaining work, Boccaccio was credited, at least in large part, with the popularization of the sonnet form in poetry, a poetic form that has weathered almost 700 years of continual beloved use among writers and readers. From the Decameron by Giovanni Boccaccio, Federico's Falcon, we begin. Once Philomena had finished, the queen, finding that there was no one left to speak apart from herself, Dioneo being excluded from the reckoning because of his privilege, smiled cheerfully and said, It is now my own turn to address you, and I shall gladly do so, dearest ladies, with a story similar in some respects to the one we have just heard. This I have chosen not only to acquaint you with the power of your beauty over men of noble spirit, but so that you may learn to choose for yourselves, whenever necessary, the persons on whom to bestow your largesse, instead of always leaving these matters to be decided for you by fortune, who, as it happens, nearly always scatters her gifts with more abundance than discretion. You are to know, then, that Copo di Borghese Domenici, who once used to live in our city and possibly lives there still, one of the most highly respected men of our century, a person worthy of eternal fame, who achieved his position of preeminence by dint of his character and abilities rather than by his noble lineage, frequently took pleasure during his declining years in discussing incidents from the past with his neighbors and other folk. In this pastime he excelled all others, for he was more coherent, possessed a superior memory, and spoke with greater eloquence. He had a fine repertoire, including a tale he frequently told concerning a young Florentine called Federigo, the son of Messer Filippo Alberighi, who for his deeds of chivalry and courtly manners was more highly spoken of than any other squire in Tuscany. In the manner of most young men of gentle breeding, Federigo lost his heart to a noble lady, whose name was Mona Giovanna, and who in her time was considered one of the loveliest and most adorable women to be found in Florence. And with the object of winning her love, he rode at the ring, tilted, gave sumptuous banquets, and distributed a large number of gifts, spending money without any restraint whatsoever. But since she was no less chaste than she was fair, the lady took no notice, either of the things that were done in her honor or of the person who did them. In this way, spending far more than he could afford and deriving no profit in return, Federigo lost his entire fortune, as can easily happen, and reduced himself to poverty, being left with nothing other than a tiny little farm which produced an income just sufficient for him to live very frugally, and one falcon of the finest breed in the whole world. Since he was as deeply in love as ever, and felt unable to go on living the sort of life in Florence to which he aspired, he moved out to Campi, where his little farm happened to be situated. Having settled in the country, he went hunting as often as possible with his falcon, and without seeking assistance from anyone, he patiently resigned himself to a life of poverty. Now one day, while Federigo was living in these straitened circumstances, the husband of Mona Giovanna happened to fall ill, and realizing that he was about to die, he drew up his will. He was a very rich man, and in his will he left everything to his son, who was just growing up, further stipulating that, if his son should die without legitimate issue, his estate should go to Mona Giovanna, to whom he had always been deeply devoted. 
Shortly afterward, he died, leaving Mona Giovanna a widow, and every summer, in accordance with Florentine custom, she went away with her son to a country estate of theirs, which was very near Federigo's farm. Consequently, this young lad of hers happened to become friendly with Federigo, acquiring a passion for birds and dogs, and having seen Federigo's falcon in flight, he became fascinated by it and longed to own it. But since he could see that Federigo was deeply attached to the bird, he never ventured to ask him for it. And there the matter rested, when, to the consternation of his mother, the boy happened to be taken ill. Being her only child, he was the apple of his mother's eye, and she sat beside the bed the whole day long, never ceasing to comfort him. Every so often she asked him whether there was anything he wanted, imploring him to tell her what it was, because if it was possible to acquire it, she would move heaven and earth to obtain it for him. After hearing this offer repeated for the umpteenth time, the boy said, Mother, if you could arrange for me to have Federigo's falcon, I believe I should soon get better. On hearing this request, the lady was somewhat taken aback and began to consider what she could do about it. Knowing that Federigo had been in love with her for a long time and that she had never deigned to cast so much as a single glance in his direction, she said to herself, how can I possibly go to him, or even send anyone, to ask him for this falcon, which, to judge from all I have heard, is the finest that ever flew, as well as being the only thing that keeps him alive? And how can I be so heartless as to deprive so noble a man of his one remaining pleasure? Her mind filled with reflections of this sort, she remained silent, not knowing what answer to make to her son's request, even though she was quite certain that the falcon was hers for the asking. At length, however, her maternal instincts gained the upper hand, and she resolved, come what may, to satisfy the child by going in person to Federigo to collect the bird and bring it back to him. And so she replied, Bear up, my son, and see whether you can start feeling any better. I give you my word that I shall go and fetch it for you first thing tomorrow morning. Next morning, taking another lady with her for company, his mother left the house as though intending to go for a walk, made her way to Federigo's little cottage, and asked to see him. For several days the weather had been unsuitable for hawking, so Federigo was attending to one or two little jobs in his garden, and when he heard, to his utter astonishment, that Mona Giovanna was at the front door and wished to speak to him, he happily rushed there to greet her. When she saw him coming, she advanced with womanly grace to meet him. Federigo received her with a deep bow, whereupon she said, "'Greetings, Federigo,' then she continued. "'I have come to make amends for the harm you have suffered on my account by loving me more than you ought to have done. As a token of my esteem, I should like to take breakfast with you this morning, together with my companion here, but you must not put yourself to any trouble.' "'My lady,' replied Federigo in all humility. I cannot recall ever having suffered any harm on your account. On the contrary, I have gained so much that if ever I attained any kind of excellence, it was entirely because of your own great worth and the love I bore you. Moreover, I can assure you that this visit which you have been generous enough to pay me is worth more to me than all the money I ever possessed, though I fear that my hospitality will not amount to very much." 
So saying, he led her unassumingly into the house, and thence into his garden, where, since there was no one else he could call upon to chaperone her, he said, My lady, as there is nobody else available, this good woman, who is the wife of the farmer here, will keep you company whilst I go and see about setting the table. Though his poverty was acute, the extent to which he had squandered his wealth had not yet been fully borne home to Federigo. But on this particular morning, finding that he had nothing to set before the lady for whose love he had entertained so lavishly in the past, his eyes were well and truly open to the fact. Distressed beyond all measure, he silently cursed his bad luck and rushed all over the house like one possessed, but could find no trace of either money or valuables. By now the morning was well advanced. He was still determined to entertain the gentlewoman to some sort of meal, and not wishing to beg assistance from his own farmer, or from anyone else for that matter. His gaze alighted on his precious falcon, which was sitting on its perch in the little room where it was kept. And having discovered, on picking it up, that it was nice and plump, he decided that since he had nowhere else to turn, it would make a worthy dish for such a lady as this. So without thinking twice about it, he wrung the bird's neck and promptly handed it over to his housekeeper to be plucked, dressed, and roasted carefully on a spit. Then he covered the table with spotless linen, of which he still had a certain amount in his possession, and returned in high spirits to the garden, where he announced to his lady that the meal, such as he had been able to prepare, now was ready. The lady and her companion rose from where they were sitting and made their way to the table, and together with Federigo, who waited on them with the utmost deference, they made a meal of the prize falcon without knowing what they were eating. On leaving the table they engaged their host in pleasant conversation for a while, and when the lady thought it time to broach the subject she had gone there to discuss, she turned to Federigo and addressed him affably as follows. I do not doubt for a moment, Federigo, that you will be astonished at my impertinence when you discover my principal reason for coming here, especially when you recall your former mode of living and my virtue, which you possibly mistook for harshness and cruelty. But if you had ever had any children to make you appreciate the power of parental love, I should think it certain that you would to some extent forgive me. However, the fact that you have no children of your own does not exempt me, a mother, from the laws common to all other mothers. And being bound to obey those laws, I am forced, contrary to my own wishes and to all the rules of decorum and propriety, to ask you for something to which I know you are very deeply attached, which is only natural, seeing that it is the only consolation, the only pleasure, the only recreation remaining to you in your present extremity of fortune. The gift I am seeking is your falcon, to which my son has taken so powerful a liking that if I fail to take it to him I fear he will succumb to the illness from which he is suffering, and consequently I shall lose him. In imploring you to give me this falcon, I appeal not to your love, for you are under no obligation to me on that account, but rather to your noble heart, whereby you have proved yourself superior to all others in the practice of courtesy. Do me this favor, then so that I may claim that through your generosity I have saved my son's life, thus placing him forever in your debt. When he learned what it was that she wanted, and realized that he could not oblige her because he had given her the falcon to eat, Federigo burst into tears in her presence before being able to utter a single word in reply. 
At first the lady thought his tears stemmed more from his grief at having to part with his fine falcon than from any other motive, and was on the point of telling him that she would prefer not to have it. But on second thoughts she said nothing, and waited for Federigo to stop crying and give her his answer, which eventually he did. "'My lady,' he said, "'ever since God decreed that you should become the object of my love,' I have repeatedly had cause to complain of fortune's hostility toward me. But all her previous blows were slight by comparison with the one she has dealt me now. Nor shall I ever be able to forgive her when I reflect that you have come to my poor dwelling, which you never deigned to visit when it was rich, and that you desire from me a trifling favor which she has made it impossible for me to concede. The reason is simple, and I shall explain it in few words." When you did me the kindness of telling me that you wished to breakfast with me, I considered it right and proper, having regard to your excellence and merit, to do everything within my power to prepare a more sumptuous dish than those I would offer to my ordinary guests. My thoughts therefore turned to the falcon you have asked me for, and knowing its quality, I reputed it a worthy dish to set before you. So I had it roasted and served to you on the trencher this morning, and I could not have wished for a better way of disposing of it. But now that I discover that you wanted it in a different form, I am so distressed by my inability to grant your request that I shall never forgive myself for as long as I live. In confirmation of his words, Federigo caused the feathers, talons, and beak to be cast on the table before her. On seeing and hearing all this, the lady reproached him at first for killing so fine a falcon and serving it up for a woman to eat. But then she became lost in admiration for his magnanimity of spirit, which no amount of poverty had managed to diminish, nor ever would. But now that her hopes of obtaining the falcon had vanished, she began to feel seriously concerned for the health of her son. And after thanking Federigo for his hospitality and good intentions, she took her leave of him, looking all despondent, and returned to the child. And to his mother's indescribable sorrow, within the space of a few days, whether through his disappointment in not being able to have the falcon, or because he was in any case suffering from a mortal illness, the child passed from this life. After a period of bitter mourning and continued weeping, the lady was repeatedly urged by her brothers to remarry, since not only had she been left a vast fortune, but she was still a young woman. And though she would have preferred to remain a widow, they gave her so little peace that in the end, recalling Federigo's high merits and his latest act of generosity, namely to have killed such a fine falcon in her honor, she said to her brothers, "'If only it were pleasing to you, I should willingly remain as I am.' But since you are so eager for me to take a husband, you may be certain that I shall never marry any other man except Federigo dei Alberighi. Her brothers made fun of her, saying, Silly girl, don't talk such nonsense. How can you marry a man who hasn't a penny with which to bless himself? My brothers, she replied, I am well aware of that, but I would sooner have a gentleman without riches than riches without a gentleman. Seeing that her mind was made up, and knowing Federigo to be a gentleman of great merit even though he was poor, her brothers fell in with her wishes and handed her over to him, along with her immense fortune. Thenceforth, finding himself married to this great lady with whom he was so deeply in love, and very rich into the bargain, 
Federigo managed his affairs more prudently and lived with her in happiness to the end of his days. Thanks for joining us. Tune in to another session of Just Listen by visiting your Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org.